This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and we pray that you would speak to us through it by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Three weeks ago, quoting John Piper, Mother Tish reminded us that life is war. That's not all it is, but it's always that. And that war is one waged between the spiritual forces of darkness. And those forces are both without and within. Well, this morning we encounter in James chapter 4, verse 1, him speaking of the cravings that are at war within you. And this is a passage of stark contrast. Envy and selfish ambition, which causes disorder and wickedness of every kind, on the one hand, and the wisdom from above, which is marked by good things and produces a harvest of righteousness on the other. Another way of looking at this war within us is to see it as a battle between worldly ambition and godly ambition. And this is well illustrated for us in our gospel reading today. There we see some of the disciples getting into this almost playground argument about who's the greatest. And the backdrop of the disciples bickering is Jesus' teaching that he must suffer and die. Mark 9, 31, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and three days after being killed, he will rise again. That teaching um, couldn't really be clearer or more concise. And I imagine many here this morning have heard that teaching many times. But it's worth hearing again. We should never forget that Jesus did not come to earth only to teach and preach and heal, but he came primarily to die. That was God's plan from before Christ was born, that Jesus would be betrayed into human hands, be killed, and then raised from the dead. You know, if we ever reduce the teachings of the Bible to moralism or rules by which to live by, we've missed the point. That's why we always need to be careful when we read the teachings, particularly of St. James, that we not take his teachings out of context. Rather, when James tells us how to live, it's not some disconnected moralism, but rather it flows from a right understanding of who Jesus is and how we're to love in response to his love for us and how we're to live according to his call on our lives. But I want us to stay with the gospel message, uh, passage for a little bit longer this morning. For after Jesus explains what must happen to him, Mark tells us in verse 32 that the disciples did not understand. They didn't understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And I want us to notice three things here. First, they didn't get it. They did not understand now, they weren't stupid, it's just that what Jesus was saying was so far removed from their 
frames of reference of everything that they thought he came to do and everything that they thought he was. They could not get their head around it. And I think it's fair to say that probably not every Jewish person at that time believed that God would actually send the Messiah. And maybe nobody believed that if he did, the Messiah would have to suffer, even die. That was way beyond their comprehension. Now, in some ways, it shouldn't have been, and certainly not for the disciples, for this was not the first time that Jesus had told them that he would have to die. But their hearts and minds were closed. What about us? I think sometimes the over-familiarity of our faith can lead us to not take it in, not to live by it. I wonder when God is wanting to say something to us, how good are we at listening? How open are we at hearing his voice? Perhaps you hear something in church or as you're reading the scriptures and you have a sense that God's saying something. Well, if that happens, don't be like the disciples and either refuse to understand or if you don't understand, at least ask for clarification, which is the second point. I want us to notice the disciples didn't do that. They were afraid to ask Jesus what he meant. I wonder why. Maybe they were embarrassed to ask and they didn't want to look stupid. Maybe they were ashamed to, to, to own up to their own ignorance. Or maybe, maybe they didn't want to ask because they, they didn't really want to hear the answer he might give. A bit like a person who goes to the doctor and is afraid to ask the most pertinent question in case there's bad news. So, the disciples don't understand. They're afraid to ask. And thirdly, under stress, they regress. What do they do immediately after Jesus has shared this immense truth about his future? They start arguing with each other. They thought Jesus hadn't realized they got a rude awakening when they arrived to where they're staying. Somebody told me the other day that it's a bit like, and children, just close your ears for a minute, it's a bit like kids in the back of a car Sometimes they seem to think that the parent who's driving can't hear. Well, actually, we can. Um, and, and Jesus knew what the disciples were arguing about on the way. And so he says to them, oh, so what are you arguing about on the way? We can only imagine how they felt. No wonder they were silent. There's something very sad, actually, and poignant in this scene. Jesus is quite literally on his way to suffering and death. And he's told the disciples this again. And they're bickering about who's the greatest. I wonder, was anyone arguing on your way to church this morning? Have, have you had any arguments with your family or friends this past week? But seriously, what gets you stirred up, heated, passionate? What makes you indignant or outraged? Is it when someone infringes on your rights or takes your place in line or passes over you, preferring a colleague for promotion? Or do you become indignant when you see someone else suffering, when you see injustice? Well, the argument that the disciples have been having certainly wasn't out of any righteous indignation. And whereas previously they'd kept silent because they were ashamed of their own ignorance, now they're silent well, because of how they've been behaving, and they no doubt don't want to admit what they've been talking about. 
it's funny, I, you know, I, I, I wonder, perhaps they thought Jesus wasn't listening. Um, and so they're happy to go at it with one another. And no doubt, their posturing and their arguing seemed completely reasonable and justifiable to them. I mean, isn't that how it is with us? When we're defending our corner, it seems so right. But when Jesus is there in front of them, well, it puts it all into sharp relief. I wonder how many times would we be silent if Jesus were with us when we're defending our corners or justifying our behaviors or accusing someone else. I wonder how long would we go on arguing or engaging in destructive words or actions or wanting to have the last word if Jesus were standing next to us. And of course, there's a flaw in my questions, for there can be no if in them. Jesus is standing next to us. He is with us all the time. Well, Jesus deals with this whole situation, seriously, he doesn't yell at them, but he sits down, taking the posture of a rabbi about to teach. And he tells them once again. And he deals with what they've been arguing about, a matter that had at its root ambition. It's as if he was saying, okay, be ambitious, but here's how. Whoever wants to be first must be last must be last of all and servant of all. And this teaching of Jesus is shocking. It's hard. And you know, most people will not get this kind of teaching today at school. Maybe some do in some schools, but not typically. Our culture tells us that through education and through advertising, through sport, through politics, in a million different ways, work hard, better yourself, earn more, get ahead. And if you're at school or university, I hope that you are working hard. That's good. I hope you want to do well, of course. But let me ask you this. Why? Why do you work for good grades? Why do you push yourself? Is it so you can get into the best university or land the best job? Is it so that you can earn lots of money? Is it so that you can be happy? Now, those things are not wrong, it's just that Jesus wants you also to have some other ambitions, greater ambitions. Jesus wants you to be ambitious so you can serve. Be ambitious to be first, yes. But the way to being first, Jesus says, is by being last of all and servant of all. You know, contrary to the U.S. Declaration of Independence, Jesus never said, that the pursuit of happiness is an unalienable right. He said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and put God first. Indeed, we have to be willing to set aside our own pursuits of happiness sometimes in order to love God and our neighbor as ourselves. And then Jesus illustrates this point. He, he takes a small child and he sets her amongst them and he says, whoever welcomes one such child as this in my name welcomes me. And not just me, but the one who sent me. You know, today, children rightly have a high status in our culture. They are afforded all kinds of protections and benefits as they should. 
But that was not the case in Jesus' day. Children were not highly regarded, and the idea of welcoming a toddler would have been shocking. If Jesus was teaching us this lesson today, I'm not sure he would have used a young child to make his point. Maybe he'd have chosen someone with no voice, someone whose opinion is ignored, someone who's weak and vulnerable, someone who's unemployed or poor or homeless or sick. And Jesus said, whoever welcomes one such person in my name welcomes me. I think sometimes we mistake that illustration to think we've got to be like the cute child. And actually, most toddlers I know aren't the best example of the kind of living that Christ is illustrating. But you know, when I listen to the news or read the paper or listen to the propaganda on the radio, right or left, I'm often appalled at the sheer arrogance and meanness of the views and actions of so many people in the face of such great need in our nation and across the world. The hard-heartedness, the stubbornness, it makes me mad. But of course, I don't need to point fingers at the media or the politicians or any institution or individual to see so much that is wrong and must grieve God. I only have to look in the mirror. So what are we to do? How, how can we make a difference? How can we live in such a way that we don't get caught up in these foolish arguments? How can we be wise? How can we engage in this war between worldly ambition and godly ambition? Which brings us back to James. And James exhorts us to practice our faith with wisdom from above, wisdom that comes from God. You know, when you think about wisdom, I wonder what words come to your mind to describe it. What does wisdom look like? You know, we might say, well, a wise person is, is smart. They're, they're clever. They're intelligent. They're incisive. They're prudent. They've got good judgment. And I think those things are often true about wise people. But none of those words are used by James in the way he describes this wisdom from above. He uses seven descriptors, chapter 3, verse 17. The wisdom from above, James writes, is one, pure, two, peaceable, three, gentle, four, willing to yield, five, full of mercy, six, um, and, and good fruits, and seven, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. What a contrast between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And James continues, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. I wonder what drives you in your work or in your relationships. Is it selfish ambition or is it this wisdom from above? Are you and I known as people who are pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield? full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. Well, James goes on to explain that we don't have the things that we want because we don't ask for them. Or if we do ask for them, we don't receive them because we ask wrongly out of selfish ambition rather than godly ambition. You see, all the way through this, that these two um, competing ambitions, competing ways, 
And he doesn't pull any punches. In verse 4, he he calls them adulterers. He's not accusing them of being actual adulterers. Rather, he's warning them in the starkest possible terms that being friends with the world means being enemies with God. Indeed, he he repeats that twice. I want to read you a passage um, that N.T. Wright Comments, commenting on this. He says, but what does he mean by the world here? And how does friendship with the world in that sense relate to what James has been saying about war, fighting, and asking for things the wrong way? By the world, he seems to mean, as often in scripture, the way the world behaves, the pattern of life, the underlying implicit story, the things people want, expect, long for, and dream of that drive them to think and behave the way that they do. If you go with the drift, if you don't reflect on what you're doing, but just pick up the habits of mind and body from all around you, the chances are you will be become friends with the world in this sense. You'll be normal. It takes guts to stand out and be different. It also takes thought, decision, and determination. I think he's right. If you just go with the flow, if, if basically we're just the same as everybody else in the world, then yeah, we're just the same as everybody else in the world. What might it mean then instead to be a friend of God? I mean, I think it could mean all kinds of things. But if we stick with James, I think it would include taming our tongues. It would include that we practice these characteristics of wisdom from above. Purity, gentleness, being willing to yield, being peaceable, full of mercy, bearing good fruit, without hypocrisy. You know, we cannot claim to be God's people while having a long-running affair with the world. God is rightly jealous for an exclusive relationship with us, his people. And the good news in this is that God promises to help us, to be with us, to enable us, to equip us by his Holy Spirit, to be who he wants us to be, to do what he calls us to do. As God yearns for his Holy Spirit to dwell in us, verse 6, he gives us all the more grace. Grace to receive his Spirit, grace to live Lives that demonstrate this wisdom from above. And the goal of all this is that there may be a harvest of righteousness. And you know, at the end of the day, righteousness is about being right with God. And that's something that we can't make happen on our own efforts. That goes back to where we started. That's what Jesus came to do in dying for us. Nevertheless, both our gospel passage and this portion from James's letter demonstrate how our behavior can either help or hinder other people from coming to know and experience this righteousness from God. James tells us that the righteousness from God is sown in peace. And we need to be peacemakers in our homes, in in our church family, in in the places we work, in schools, universities, hospitals, the the wide community, wherever. And if we're to experience peace with God and with one another, if we're to see this harvest of righteousness in our midst, 
then we have to heed those words of Jesus this morning. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. I believe God has a tremendous harvest of righteousness in store for us. That surely is his desire, to see more people transformed by the Holy Spirit. So let's not get sidetracked with all that can so easily distract us along the way. The petty arguing, our own agendas or hurts or longing after those cravings that are at war within us that James talks about. Rather, let's work hard. Yes, including to pursue our studies, our vocation, so that we can use that which God has entrusted to us in our skills, in our learning, in all the opportunities that he gives us and all the resources. But not for our own advancement primarily, but in the service of God and our neighbor. Following Jesus is not about tacking on a bit of spirituality for our comfort. Following Jesus is about walking in the footsteps of the one who knew suffering and cross-bearing and who actually doesn't promise happiness or riches or pleasure. Jesus calls us to live lives of service, lives of sacrifice. You know, those are the kinds of words we might expect to hear in a time of national crisis or, or war. You know, your country needs you. You need to be living a life of service. You need to be self-sacrificial. Well, I think we need to hear them as in a time of war. We're in the midst of a crisis, a crisis of greed and selfishness and the pursuit of personal happiness without regard for others. And we are at war, a war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. I want to finish with where we'll pick up next week. I don't want to steal anything from Mother Anne, who'll be preaching, but um, the very next verse, verse 7, James says, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That drawing near to God and holding fast to our Christian faith is something that is very, very difficult to do in isolation. Indeed, we're not meant to. We're meant to do this together. And I'm glad that I have this community to help me submit to God, particularly in those times when I'd really rather not. So let us lean on one another, that together we may strive to be first by being last of all, and servant of all. So help us God. Amen.